there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who are good with directions and those who aren't. And uh, maybe you're turning to the person next to you because you know which one they are. There's also two kinds of people in the world. There's those who think that the, the, the directions are north, south, east, and west. And then those who think that it's right or left. Um, and so those tend to kind of put us into some categories uh, this morning. Uh, directions are hard and they're difficult. And, and I know that for me, there's lots of things that I am not good at. Um, don't ask me to come help you with a household project. Something's broken in your house. Please call someone else. I'm not your guy. I'm also not good at singing. That's why I, I love TJ. And uh, he does the singing and I do the talking this morning. Uh, and then I'm also not good at digesting dairy products. So please never ask me out for ice cream because I will probably take a pass on that one. But, but directions are really, really important. And they used to be a lot more difficult than they are today. I can remember when I was young, we would go to the local AAA office. We would get a map, maybe a book of maps or a book that had that state in there. And it had all of the different restaurants and hotels. And that was our guide for our trip. Later on, we discovered the, the Internet and MapQuest. We'd print off our directions and have those with us. And now we just, we just carry our phones. We've got Google Maps that will dictate to us, and then we can yell at Google Maps when it tells us to go the wrong way, and we don't want to reroute or make a U-turn. But directions are, are really important, and it's not just important to know where it is that you're going. It's also important to know how it is that you're going to get there. I stumbled on a story recently that really made that point strongly. In 1979, there was a passenger jet that took off from New Zealand on a very unique flight. Uh, it was a sightseeing tour that left from New Zealand with about 250 passengers headed for Antarctica. And so they were going to go to Antarctica and sightsee that beautiful ice-covered continent. And the pilots of that flight they were extremely skilled, gifted. They had flown many times before, but they had never flown that specific route before. And they made a fatal mistake. They started the trip two degrees off on their orientation. And over the many hundreds and thousands of miles that they went on this trip, when they arrived in Antarctica, they were 28 miles off. And as they descended from the clouds down to a level where their passengers could look out the windows of the plane and see the beautiful landscape, they discovered something right in their path. This mountain, Mount Erebus, an active volcano that rose to a height of over 12,000 feet. And in 1979, that passenger plane filled with 257 people crashed. And every soul on board was lost. And that story is an example of a rule in aviation. It's the one in 60 rule. That for every one degree a plane veers off course, it misses its target destination by one mile for every 60 miles you fly. So the longer you go, just one degree off, you get further and further and further away. For example, if you took off and your goal was to fly right here, and you were, say, a thousand miles away, and your goal was to land here at 
the middle school. Obviously, there's not a good place to land a jet anywhere near here, but if this was your destination, and yet when you left your, 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 your starting point one degree off, and you flew a 1,000 miles here, instead of landing here, you'd land at Mortimer Farms out in Dewey by just being one degree off. And that's why over these four weeks, as we start the fall here at Cornerstone, we're talking about our values. We're calling this series The Core, exploring what we value most, because it's not just important to know where you're going, it's also important to know how it is you're going to get there. And our values in life, our values as a church, your values as an individual, the values of your family, they, they determine how it is that you're going to navigate your way through life, how you're going to make hard decisions, how you're going to evaluate different options, how you're going to rank priorities. Our values determine all of those things. And so each week in this series, we're sharing with you two of the eight values that we have developed as a church reflecting on the question, what do we value most? What's most important to us? Last week, if you weren't here, we shared the first two values, and we said that we value surrendering to Jesus' agenda, and we value submitting to Scripture even and especially when both of those are difficult. Because when our agenda collides with Jesus's, and when Scripture contradicts our natural inclinations or maybe the biases that we bring, we have a difficult moment. Are we going to submit to Scripture? Or are we going to assert our own beliefs? Are we going to surrender to Jesus' agenda? Are we going to continue to pursue our own? And so those are the first two values we shared. If you want to follow along with us as we're going throughout this series, you can go to our website, preston slash values, and we're putting the values there as we teach through them. I also hope that this series is provoking you to think about your own values. It's not a bad exercise to sit down and think about your values as an individual, maybe your values as a family, maybe the values that guide your company or organization you're a part of. I think it's even important to have a set of values about how we are going to act online. I think a lot of us would be uh, better off if we had some values that guided how we were going to treat one another and how we were going to respond to things when we spend so much time of our life online. But today we're going to share with you two more of our values in week two of the series, and these are the next two values we're sharing. We value fighting for simplicity, that's value number three, and we value equipping people to live out their faith in public, that's value number four. And we're going to walk through those each one at a time. So the first one we're going to tackle today is we value fighting for simplicity. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it up or turn it on and go to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in chapter one. Now, if you're new to your Bible, Colossians is near the back. And so if you're in a digital Bible, you're going to scroll almost to the end. If you're in a physical Bible, you're going to turn almost to the end. Colossians is preceded by Philippians. It's right before uh, 1 Thessalonians. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of believers in a city named Colossae. And near the end of the first chapter, he gets really direct about his purpose and his sense of calling, what matters most to him. So if you want to follow on the screen, if you don't have a Bible, you can certainly do that. Beginning in verse 24, the Apostle Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body that is the church. I have become the church's servant. I've become its servant 
according to God's commission that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's trying to help them understand this mystery, this beauty, this hopeful thing that's Christ dwelling within them. We proclaim him, that's Jesus, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that, and those two words are going to be important later on today, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Now, in the same way that when those pilots took off from New Zealand, they had a compass and they had instruments that helped orientate them, the Apostle Paul is saying that his orientation is this work of seeing that every single one of these people in this church in Colossae would grow up into maturity in Christ. Now, in our world, we often define maturity by by age. You know, if there's a little bit of gray in the hair, it means you're more mature. You know, mature by height. Have you stopped growing or are you continuing to grow? Maybe we define maturity based upon experience. But the the word that's translated into English as maturity comes from a Greek word. It's the word telos, and it means wholeness, fullness, completeness. It's this idea that there is a person that God created us to be, and we are growing up into that person, and one day we will fully be everything that God made us to be. And in the meantime, Paul says, I am laboring. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing afflictions. There's pain involved in me working to see that you become everything that God made you to be. But there are some challenges. With anything that's important in life, there are always challenges, resistance, and obstacles. And one of those comes from the world, world of science. So in the, if you remember your science classes when you were in school, there's the second law of thermodynamics which says that the natural tendency in all of creation is towards entropy and disorder. It's the law of entropy. Everything that you think you have organized and put together and planned is not going to stay that way. It moves towards disorder. This is the thing that governs your garage. It's the thing that governs that junk drawer in your room. It's the thing that governs your schedule. Everything moves towards entropy and disorder. And it creates problems. And one of the ways that that plays out in church, one of the ways that we experience obstacles as a church is the tendency in the church is towards complexity and busyness. In our lives, things don't naturally become simpler and emptier. Think about your life, your calendar. No, things become more complex and they become more busy. And that busyness becomes a distraction. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, author C.S. Lewis imagines what some conversations might be like with demons that are opposing the work of God and the people of God. And in one section of the book, one of the demons says, whatever there, and there is a reference to humans, whatever humans' bodies do affects their souls. It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. 
One of the main tools that our enemy uses to keep us from becoming everything that God wants us to be, has called us to be, maturing into that, one of his best tools is distraction. If we find ourselves so caught up in other things that are important but less important, good but not great, we will never get to the most important things. And if our goal is to be transformed, to be like Jesus, as Paul describes in Colossians 1, then distraction is the enemy. You've had those days, like I have, where you started the day with a to-do list. And I'm the kind of person who puts items on the to-do list that I've already done, just so that I can have the gratification of checking it off or crossing it off. And sometimes you begin a day and you've got, a, you've got a list of the things that are most important to you. And then fast forward, what happens at the end of the day? Those things remain undone. You did lots of things in the day. Other people had ideas for you to do, but you found yourself distracted again and again. Or maybe you pull your phone out and you go, okay, I'm going to get on my phone and I'm going to do this one thing. And then two hours later, you've become an expert on cooking some new type of food. You've learned some new random factoids and your Netflix queue has gotten longer and you've reconnected with some long lost friend and you're like, what just happened? It's been two hours. I was just getting on to do this one thing. Distraction is the enemy. And many times I I feel like uh, the son of Will Smith in the movie Karate Kid and I feel like Jackie Chan is telling me, Scott, your focus, it needs focus. I feel like distraction is constantly trying to keep me from the things that are most important. And so often what happens is it's not the bad things that distract us. So often the most distracting things in life are good things. But they're not the most important things. They're good options, but they get in the way of the best options. And so as a church, we've said, hey, we value this kind of transformation that Paul is talking about so much that we are putting it in language that one of our eight values as a church is what we call fighting for simplicity. Here's what we mean by that. We say when we describe this on that values page that we are a simple church with a passion for transformation. I'm not sure if anybody in the room is a member of a gym, but you need to know that that gym really is not committed to your fitness. Because there's more members of the gym that can fit in the gym. And so their goal is to not have everybody show up at the same time. If 100% of people worked out five days a week, the gym would have real problems. But they intentionally enroll people more than can fit. It's part of their model. How to make the gym work. That's not our model. Our goal is not to have you be part of Cornerstone, but never engage with us. No, our passion is that by engaging with this community of faith, that you would be transformed and become everything that God created you to be. And so as a church, we have simplified our approach to keep that thing the focus because we recognize that distractions abound. We continue in the, in the, in the statement, we say, we focus on a map of next steps rather than a menu of programs. Because we know that many times the programs that are present in many churches become like distractions from transformation. People become busy at church, but they don't become different at church. And so we encourage and we challenge everybody who's part of our church to at least take these four steps. We call them the big four or the map. And they are gather, connect, serve, and engage. We challenge everyone to gather and worship. Now I know for many of you, 
whether you're watching me say this live or you're watching me say this two days from now, two weeks from now, or you're listening to me as you mow your lawn, that many of us have changed how we interact with church over the last 18 months. Many of us have stopped gathering in church and we've just started consuming church. The way we consume a podcast or an audiobook. And I would tell you that hopefully the content I'm sharing today is helpful for you whenever you listen to it. But the step is not to push play on church, but it's for us to gather together. And there's a different experience when we're gathered together than when you're just watching it when you have free time in the week or treating it as another piece of content that you consume in the week. We encourage everybody to gather together that part of the experience is being in relation together that even if you can't join us in person, we encourage you to join us with somebody else and be a part of the gathering. Second step is to connect in a group. A couple weeks ago, Chris Inman preached for me, and he interviewed the Girards, and they shared about how being in community, relationally connected with people, was a part of how God brought healing to a place of deep pain in their life, and purpose to what God did through that pain, and how he used them lives of other people. And so we believe that we're not intended to follow Jesus alone, but we're intended to do it in community. And so we have groups, people gather together, they open God's word, they apply what we've heard on Sundays, and they encourage one another through life, taking next steps together. Serve. We believe that everyone, according to the scriptures, has been given gifts by God. And so we want to help you serve where you're gifted. Because when you don't serve, we miss out on the gifts that God's given you to make us better, and you miss out because you can't be everything God intended for you to be if you don't put the things he put in you into action. So we encourage everybody to serve where they're gifted and then finally engage. We believe that everybody is in a circle of friends. There's people that you spend time with. If you pulled your phone open, they'd be the people that you've called or texted recently. If you open your social media, it'd be people that are in your inbox. And those are people that you're close to, but I'm not. And God's put you in those relationships on purpose and for a purpose that you might engage them with the good news of his love. And so finally in this statement we say, in each of these steps, we refuse to settle for learning new information. It's not enough to learn something new unless you're going to do something with it. No, with a bias for application, we seek to live what we learn together. Now, I'm a big reader, and I have the problem that I buy new books before I read the books I already have. My wife drives her nuts. She said, you can buy that book, but it's not going here. It's going to your office or it's going on your Kindle. No more new books if you're not going to read the books you already have. But sometimes we get the sense of like, hey, I just love learning new things. I just, I personally, I just love learning new things. And I can often get deceived into thinking that because I learned something, that's the goal. No, no, no. The goal is not learning something. The goal is living that thing out that you learned. Because God is not a, a cadaver to be dissected and pieced apart, studied. He's a person to be in a relationship with that we're seeking to be like. And as the half-brother of Jesus, James, says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. When you think that you've reached the goal and you've not taken something you've learned and you've lived it out, you're deceiving yourself. 
And as somebody who's wrestled with this, I feel like God has been pressing in on me with this. I, as I prepared this message, I shared with it many times, I tell you guys, before I start messing with you, God starts messing with me. And then I just share the, you know, the fun, you know, as that old statement goes, misery loves company. And so uh, there's a question that God's been dealing with me about as we've been going through this series and preparing for it. And it's this question, Scott, how have you transformed over the last two years? If you were to think back to two years from now, if there was a time machine available, when we went back to September 19th, sorry, September, what's the date, 19th, yeah, 2019, and you saw you then, and you interacted with you then, and you got in the head of you then, and then you jumped back in the time machine and you jumped back to today, what are the differences that would stand out to you in stark detail? And not just the physical differences, the mental, emotional, relational, spiritual differences. Because none of us stays the same. You know how sad it is when you meet somebody years later and they haven't changed at all? It's sad. It's not consistency. It's missed opportunity. And so if all of us are constantly changing, the question is, how are we constantly changing? Now, as a church, our prayer, our purpose, our mission is to see us transformed to be like Jesus. Our mission, we say, is to help people take their next step with Jesus. That's why we exist. And so the prayer would be two years past, there are visible next steps that have been taken. But I think that the sad potential answer to that question of how have you transformed is not that you've become more like Jesus, but you've changed another way. If you're honest, are you more angry than you were two years ago? Are you more bitter than you were two years ago? Are you more controlling than you were two years ago? Are you more fearful than you were two years ago? Are you more isolated than you were two years ago? Are you more discouraged? Are you more anxious? Are you more worried? See, not all change is in the right direction. And part of the reason we've even given Pastor Josh, as we interviewed him last week, a new title, Next Steps Pastor, is we want to let you know that, that this is how committed we are to this, to helping you take next steps. And all of us have next steps to take. A couple months ago, I was on a Zoom call with somebody I just met. We were talking about some things that we might be able to work on together. And this person asked me, hey, hey, Scott, what, what's the, your 10-year plan? I just started laughing. I don't think he expected it, but I just started laughing. And I was like, 10 years? Dude, have you been here for the last 18 months? Like, we couldn't see this coming. Like, how much more foggy is 10 years from now? And this isn't to put down plans. I believe in planning. But so many times over the last two years, if I was to go back and ask that question of myself, life and the future was foggy. It was hard to see what was next. It was hard to know what to do. There have been moments throughout the last year where I have just cried to God, God, I don't know what to do next. You need to speak to me. And in each of those moments, God did something but it wasn't what I wanted. I wanted him to clear the fog out and help me to see for miles. But what he did was something different. I think he thinks it's better. I'm still wrestling with that. 
And what he did is this, for every follower of Jesus, there's always the next step and the presence of the Holy Spirit to empower that step. God does not promise us that he's going to clear out all the fog of the future, make things crystal clear for the next 10 years. But what he does again and again is he reveals this is the next step you are to take and I have already given you by the power of the Holy Spirit everything you need to take that step. So I would encourage you that we value you taking a next step and we're going to do everything we can to fight to keep our focus on that and you may find that there are certain things that we don't do certain opportunities we don't pursue certain things we pass on not because they're bad but we are convinced that we cannot be distracted from this simple purpose of seeing people take their next steps and we're going to fight to keep the focus there told you there's two values there's another one i want to talk about today And it is this one, that we value equipping people to live out their faith in public. We value equipping people to live out their faith in public. If you have your Bible close to you still, I encourage you to open it up to the book of Ephesians. It's just two books before Colossians. Another letter that Paul wrote to another church that he dearly loved, this time in a city called Ephesus in Greece. And beginning in verse 11, Paul talks about the purpose that God gives gifts in the church for. And he says, And Jesus himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of the church until we all reach unity in the faith And in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then, I mentioned so that, then is a very similar word. Then, we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit, but speaking the truth in love. Let us grow in every way into him who is the head, the head of the church, Christ. So what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4 is that God has given gifts to some in the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to equip the body so that like anybody, we can grow up into fullness, not a certain height, not a certain weight, but to the fullness of the one we're measuring ourselves against Jesus. And that when we do that, the outcome of that then is that not only are we a certain type type of community of faith, but that we are also living out that faith in the world a certain kind of way. We're not tossed about. We're not deceived. We're not taken advantage of. We don't pass on conspiracy theories as truth. We're people who, who root ourselves in the truth and we grow up so that we look like Jesus. This is really important because one of the places that churches often struggle and pastors often struggle, I'll just be transparent here, is we hear from people who say, man, I want to go deeper. I want to learn more. I want to go deeper. And and that desire is good to explore what Paul describes here as the, the mysteries of God and the wonders of God and the truth of God. But he doesn't just say that you're equipped to become a self-student in your own academy 
and just add books to your list and add degrees to your wall. He says there's a larger purpose. And the reason that we go deeper into God's mysteries and truth is so that we can then live with a wider and more effective influence as we love people. Same way that you go deep when you build a building so that you can go really tall or you can go really wide, we build a deeper foundation for a larger vision in the future. And friends, there's a purpose to your growth and mine, and it's bigger than me. It's bigger than you. When we grow, that grow is not self-oriented. And so often in the church, the conversations that emerge around discipleship and, and, and equipping, formation, sadly become incredibly narcissistic. They become self-focused. So often those conversations, they, they're, they're coming not of a desire to live more on mission in the world, but for a more self-oriented thing. And that's why that phrase, so that, I wanted to draw to your attention. Both in Colossians 1 and Ephesians 4, Paul has a larger vision. He isn't just looking to raise up people who look like Jesus. He's looking to raise up people who look like Jesus and then live like Jesus and then advance the things that Jesus advanced. And that's our purpose, that, that we would be equipping you so that you can live your faith out in public. Not just on Sundays in here, but in public. And so as a staff and a board, I mentioned over the last two years, we've been wrestling through what are the things that we actually value. And we came to a point where we try to do something that people have stopped doing in our world. In our world, in our culture today, there's something we've, we've stopped doing. And that's listening and embracing nuance. One of the reasons it's so hard for us to talk to each other today is because we don't listen to each other. We just wait for our chance to respond. We also don't do any nuance. It's either this or it's that. The good guys and the bad guys, the right people and the wrong people, and there's no nuance in any of that. So what I'm about to show you is a reflection of two things. I'm going to ask you to listen, and I'm going to ask you to, to embrace that two things can be true at the same time. When it comes to this value of equipping people to live out their faith in public, this is something we value, and it's something we have to get better at. You say, if you value it, that means you're probably really good at it. No, no, it doesn't. Because there's things you value. And all the time you're learning about the places that you're not doing it as well as you need to. I've got three kids, nine and twin seven-year-olds. There's a really important season in their life. I have a tremendous weight and responsibility. I love them. I care about them. I love hearing from them. And they also tell me sometimes that I'm not listening and I'm on my phone. So because I was on my phone, they told me, am I, am I now not love, do I not, not love them? Do I not, not value them? No, I do. And it is in learning where I am not living that value out that I am motivated to recommit to that value and change my behavior in light of it. And that's what we're saying with this value. We've always valued this. And there's places we're learning that we have to get better. As a church, several years ago, I walked up on a stage, not this one, the one over at FI College, and I had a table on the stage, and I talked about the fact that our church is a kitchen table. Every Sunday, online and in the room, in different services, there are people in the room that are like a, a small child on Thanksgiving Day. 
Thanksgiving is the best food holiday of the year. You don't have to agree with me. I'm right. It's okay. It's a great food holiday. And, and on Thanksgiving, years ago, we were having dinner with my family. My grandparents were there in their 80s, and my kids were there, and they were two and three. And we all ate the same meal. But my two- and three-year-olds ate, ate a very different version of the meal than my grandparents did. But we all ate the same meal together. And every Sunday, we're here as a church, and we're going to eat the same meal together from God's Word. Now, my goal is if you're on the younger end, you're still exploring faith, you're new to faith, I want to make sure that you know where Philippians is, or you know where Ephesians is, or you know what a word means. I'm going to define it. I'm going to try to make sure that you are not lost. At the same time, if you're somebody on the older end of the table and you've been here for a long time, I want to make sure that you still see something that is your next step too. And that's the challenge. We don't do it perfectly every time, but that's our heart and our goal. But there are places and there are things that we need to continue to develop to equip you outside of this time. And so we've got a couple that I'm going to talk to you about today. One is we're announcing that in the month of November, we're going to launch a theology class calling it Theology 101. Pastor Clovis is going to lead it. He's the guy who did the announcements. Now, his job is not to do the announcements. It's way bigger than that. Uh, He's our executive pastor, and he actually has more seminary education than I do. He's got a passion for equipping people, a passion for theology, and so in the month of November, over a number of Sunday nights, there's going to be a class that helps you, if you want to sign up and take advantage of it, to take a next step with learning about your faith, but still from the living what we learn you can learn more about that class and join the interest list at prescottcornerstone.com slash theology today. They'll open up signups in a few weeks. Also, you may have noticed that we're seeing some transition in our team. Pastor Josh is stepping into a new role, and one of the things that he's going to be leading us to do this fall is prepare for an event early next year. We're going to host a marriage and family weekend, a Friday, Saturday, and some experiences on Sunday to invest in your marriage and your families. Because we know that the church is not strong if the families that are part of the church are not strong. And so we want to invest in you in that way. We launched a new website earlier this year. Some of you are watching this service on there right now. And on that site, under the Next Step tab, or by going direct to prescottcornerstone.com slash resources, our staff has put together a number of resources that you can engage self-directed to be able to take some next step when it comes to a certain topic. So if you're somebody that you're like me, you're a reader, you want to kind of explore something new, there's a number of resources listed there that might help speak to a challenge that you're facing. That list is not exhaustive, it's never going to be exhaustive, but we'll continue to add to it in the months and years to come. And then you heard Pastor Josh mention last week the the cadence that he developed when he was leading our student ministry, a, a quarterly time where those leaders could get invested in. We're seeking to make sure that in every area of our church where people serve, there's a regular cadence of training and equipping. Because what I've found is when you serve in a church, there's typically two reasons why you get discouraged and you give up and you quit. One of them is you go, this doesn't matter. I'm killing myself at this, but this doesn't matter. And when any of us feel like what we're doing doesn't matter anymore, we're in danger of giving up. And two is, like, I don't know what I'm doing where I've got a problem I need to get better at. And our goal is that everyone who serves at Cornerstone would know that what you do matters. We could not have made it through the last 18 months without volunteers. Not just staff, but volunteers. And two, we want to be able to help you get better at whatever it is that God has gifted you to do that you're partnering with us to carry out. 
And so if you're on a team, you're going to notice that over the next few months, you're going to hear about some sort of training because we want to equip you to continue to serve well because we value equipping people to live out their faith in public. And, and that last word public there, I want to camp out on before we close today. Years ago, there was an event that was introduced into the Olympics. It's called the high jump. It's not the one where you have the javelin and you jump straight up. This is the, the one where there's a bar and you run up to that bar and you try to jump over it. And so for years, when people did the high jump, there was a certain point they just couldn't break. The, the records were there and nobody could get over it. There wasn't a whole lot of movement. Until the 70s when a man named Dick Fosbury started doing the high jump. And he was a creative individual and he said, there's got to be a better way to jump over this bar. And so he developed what's called the Fosbury flop. Instead of running to the bar and jumping straight over it, he would run to the bar, run up next to it, and jump over backwards. And the world records today, in 2021, are far beyond where they were in the 70s because the paradigm shifted. And people changed how they jumped over the bar. If you watched the Olympics this summer in Tokyo, you saw people in the high jump jumping with the Fosbury flop. It's still the model for today. Now, when you look at this picture, I think this is the image a lot of you have of living out your faith in public. It's like jumping over a bar that's seven or eight feet tall. You feel intimidated. You feel inadequate. You're like, there's no way I can do this. And I'll be honest, as a pastor who's pastoring for 15 years, there are places in our culture, struggles that we have to work through, questions that come up that even for me make me sweat. That I'm not sure I totally have it figured out either. So I have empathy for you. But I want to introduce a thought for you today. This is not original to me. Somebody else shared this with me earlier this week. I wonder if the bar really is in every place as high as we think. I think there are some places when it comes to living out your faith in public that the bar is not seven feet tall. It's about as tall as this bottom bar on here. I think the bar sometimes is as low as don't be a jerk to people online. If you see somebody who disagrees with you, give them the same respect and honor as you would somebody who agrees with you. Instead of owning your enemies, do what Jesus says and love them and pray for them. See, friends, I think the bar has gotten so low because we live in a world that is so skeptical and unbelieving that we actually live what we say we believe. And yes, there are some huge questions and challenges that as individuals in a church, we're going to have to find clear and compelling answers to from Scripture, and we're going to have to live out. And we're going to continue to pursue that. But I think sometimes we set the bar to be way higher than it actually is when it comes to living out our faith in public. And I think people are shocked when you say that you're a Christian, and then you treat them with honor. So often the people who say the nastiest things in my Twitter feed, I click their profile and I see words like Jesus, God, Christian, and Bible. 
And there's a massive gap between the tweet and the words in the profile. And maybe the bar is saying, hey, I'm going to narrow the gap. I'm going to seek to live what I learn. And I'm going to treat every person, no matter what they say to me or the differences between them and me, I'm going to treat them as Jesus would. Because the people who liked Jesus the most were the people who were least like Jesus. And I think if we set that bar, I think that's a bar that we can all begin to jump over. And I think the ripples of that are bigger than we realize. So before we close today, I've got some next steps for us. And here's the first one. This week, I want you to sit down and have a 15-minute timer. It could be your phone. It could be the egg timer in your kitchen. It could be telling Alexa, set a 15-minute timer and get a blank piece of paper out. And on that paper, I want you to free write whatever comes to mind, your response to this prompt. How has Jesus transformed me in the last two years? One of the reasons why people give up is they lose that sense of why this doesn't matter. And when you don't have a sense that Jesus is transforming you and has transformed you and that you are a different person than you used to be, you will labor and struggle to continue forward. My hope is 15 minutes and a blank piece of paper will help you to see that more has happened than you realize. Jesus has been more faithful than you see and that he is at work making you everything he made you to be. Second next step, identify your next step as a follower of Jesus and take it ASAP. Following Jesus as you go along is as simple as narrowing the gap between this is what I know I'm called to do and I do it. When you're a new believer, man, it's like, ah, I don't know yet. Do I know? What are the consequences? And sometimes it's weeks or months between knowing the next right step and taking it. Maturity is that going from weeks and months to days or hours. Minutes. So if you know today, man, this is something that Jesus has called me to do that I haven't done then do it before you eat lunch today. Do it before you go to bed tonight. Do it. Take your next step. And then finally, share with your group, if you're part of one of our community groups, or share with a trusted friend where you feel stuck in living out your faith in public. If you're like, man, that is a giant eight-foot high jump bar. I could never get over it. Then share that with somebody that you trust. Because here's what I've discovered. Things that are like a high jump for me are like a small step for other people. Places where I feel stuck, other people are experts. We struggle in unique ways, and it's only when we have the courage to be honest about that in the context of community that God can use someone else to show us what we haven't seen before or haven't been able to do before. And sometimes... The next step that we need to take, friends, is on the other side of a conversation we're unwilling to have. And if you're not willing to be vulnerable about the places that you're stuck and the things that you don't know, what's going to change? You've been trying it to the best of your ability, the best of your knowledge up until now. On the other side of a courageous, vulnerable conversation might be you 
being used by God to do things that you never thought possible. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you meet us in the gap between what we say we value and how we're actually living. I'm so grateful that you meet us in that gap because that gap often gets filled with the voice of our enemy. That gap gets filled with shame, condemnation, inadequacy. And our enemy tells us that we're hypocrites and that's all we'll ever be. That we're failures. That you don't love us. That you can't use us. That we should just give up. And I'm so grateful, Jesus, that you meet us in that gap and remind us that the only reason we have a relationship with you is your grace. That we have a love from you that you gave us when we didn't earn it, we weren't worthy of it, and we didn't deserve it. And so this week, as you continue to reveal in our hearts the gap between what we know and how we live, what we've learned and how we live, what we say we value and how we live, I pray that you would meet us in that gap and with your love and your grace, you would pick us up and you would show us the next right step to take. That we'd have the courage to let somebody into that struggle that they might encourage us, hold us accountable, and help us. That we wouldn't try to follow you in the power of our own strength and might but we would depend on our only hope for the future. And that is you alive and at work within us. We pray that we never lose sight of or get over your love for us. And we thank you that you are with us.